It is now. Hey, do I need to start over? I hit it, but I didn't hit it good enough. Thank you for allowing me to be here this morning, and thank you for uh, Joshua and John, uh, the, the honor and privilege to stand in this, in this pulpit and as a, a missions pastor. I get the uh, privilege of traveling around the globe and experiencing worship in various churches and in various uh, conferences and settings. And I just want to say that the worship that I experienced in this house this morning was strong. It was sweet, and it was a blessing to my soul. So thank you for those who led us in worship, and thank you for singing loud. And my heart is already encouraged and full. So I'm delighted to be here. I have my wife, Candace, and our two children, Ava and Luke, with us this morning. And we're going to be in Psalm 23. So you can go ahead and be turning there. <clears throat> the challenge uh, I was given, this is uh, the, one of the last of all my assignments in seminary. I graduated, uh, which is not really an assignment, it's a joy. And then I have a paper to write. That's not a joy. But I do it faithfully. But the challenge was I had to preach a, a, a poetic or a prophetic text. And we find ourselves in Psalm 23. This has been called the a, a nestled in between Psalm 22, which is a psalm of anguish, and then Psalm 24, which is a psalm of victory in our King of glory. And Psalm 23 is a bridge over troubled water from anguish to glory. Young and old have this psalm memorized. Uh, I have a 91-year-old neighbor that uh, we get the privilege of looking after. And I told her, I said, I need you to be praying about my sermon. She said, what are you preaching? I said, Psalm 23. She goes, remind me how that begins. I said, the Lord is my shepherd. And she goes, I shall not want. And she quoted the whole thing from memory. Many people know this psalm. Written by King David, likely in the later years of his life, but it's hard to pin it down. And this is a little bit of a hard psalm to in interpret. It's simple, yet it's profound. And the imagery and the symbolism that exists can stir our affections for the Lord. And so he writes this as he reflects not only on his own life, but on God's presence and faithfulness to the nation of Israel to establish a people and establish a kingdom. So let's read Psalm 23. Would you please stand with me? The Word of God says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of Rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? You may be seated. I'm going to pray one more time. Lord, we love you. And we are thankful that you love us. May you be glorified. Uh, may the, the word of truth pierce us this morning. Uh, let us behold 
more of our sin, but also more of your glory and let it transform our lives and let us be confident in the good shepherd and content in the Lord of hosts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin by kind of declaring a couple things that this psalm does not teach. There's a lot of heresy in the pulpits today. There's a lot of heresy in our world today. And so what this, if we're not careful, we can read this psalm and we can easily jump into the prosperity gospel where the Lord's presence in our still waters and worldly pleasures and comfort. And while there's an element of that that's true, for sure, we know that God wants to bless us. Um, There's no guarantee we're going to spend all of our days in green pastures. And the comforts and the blessings he gives us are heavenly and spiritual blessings as well as earthly blessings. But it mentions the valley of the shadow of death in the presence of enemies. The prosperity gospel will not discuss that. So that's one heresy that this passage can lead us towards. So we have to be careful. Another heresy is that this is a very personal psalm. And the heresy of Christian individualism or isolationism, where I have God and Jesus and that's all I need. I don't need his church. I don't need the family of God. I've got Christ and that's all I need. That's a heresy because it, it doesn't take into account all the one another's of Scripture. And so even though this is a personal part of a flock, we are sheep together as the family of God. And so I just want to affirm uh, that, that this is not in any way, shape, or form prosperity or individualistic in this psalm. In fact, it's the exact opposite. So what does this text teach? There's two primary themes. You're lucky you get a two-for-one today. And the first theme is that the Lord is our good shepherd. The second theme, and that's in verses 1 through 4, the second theme is that God, and specifically in Christ, is the Lord of hosts. That's in verse 5 through 6. And so here is the theme of our text today. Here's the point of this sermon. Is that the Lord's presence in our lives as our shepherd gives us confidence as he leads us in battle. And the Lord's presence in our lives as our host, as the Lord of hosts, gives us contentment in our journey with him. The shepherd gives us confidence in the battle. The Lord of hosts gives us contentment in our journey. So verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now David confidently calls the Lord his shepherd. And so immediately we are faced with a question. We are, Jesus Christ truly my shepherd? Because if he's not then something else is. Something else is leading us. And David declares that the Lord is leading him, and this is all he needs. He has a good shepherd. Now, the shepherd motif is familiar in this day and age. We don't have shepherds running around Midtown or Collierville or pretty much anywhere else in the state of Tennessee. But back then they did. 
Abraham was a shepherd. Moses had been a shepherd. David himself had been a shepherd. This was familiar language. And one thing that's true about a shepherd, especially in this day and age, is that a shepherd did not drive the flock. He led them. And he leads them by their voice. And they follow his voice. This is what John 10 echoes when Jesus declares that he's the good shepherd. Listen to John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's remarkable. How well did Jesus and the Father know each other? That's how well Jesus knows his sheep continues, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold will listen to my voice. We are those other sheep, and praise the Lord, he has brought us into his fold. And so we must learn to listen and declare and have confidence that the Lord is our shepherd. We must learn to listen to the voice of the good shepherd in our life each and every day. Not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification and for our journey. And when we don't, when we don't listen to the Lord and His voice, we find ourselves wanting and wondering. So David is confident, and he says, He's my shepherd, I shall not want. And does that mean there aren't things that we want? Well, no, of course there are things we want. But He provides us with what we need. And when we listen to the voice of the Lord and follow him, he will lead us to green pastures and still waters. This represents provision in our life, but it also represents peace in our life. So there are provisions, but there's rest, there's peace. And in the noonday heat, this shepherd would guide them to peaceful waters, guide them to the shade to protect them. By this good shepherd, and he will lead us to good things in this life. It's not all doom and gloom. It is good. A life in Christ is blessed. And these are continuous actions that a shepherd does. It's not today, it's every day the shepherd is leading. And he provides us with what we need to sustain and rest in life. So we cannot fail to neglect to worship the Lord, the shepherd, when life is good. It's easy to go to him when turmoil hits, when disaster strikes, when we are confronted with challenges. But when life is good, things are hunky-dory, we're doing good, the bills are being paid, food on the table. Sometimes we don't, we fail to worship and thank him for these green pastures. And so there's a difference between what we need and what we want, of course, because verse 3 tells us that our greatest need is to have our souls restored from death to life, from darkness to light, from the path of unrighteousness to the path of righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you're feeling like you're in a season of uh, you got a lot of onions in your pasture instead of green, you can thank the Lord that your greatest need has been met and your soul has been restored 
through the blood of Christ. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25. He himself bore our sins in his body, lived to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Woo! Your soul is being overseen by the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. You can't get any greener than that. You can't get any clearer than that. That's the clearest stream we could ever ask for from God. And so salvation in Jesus Christ is the greatest blessing anyone can receive. And it says all of our blessings are for his name's sake. Our green pastures are still waters. Uh, while they comfort us, they're not for us, they're for Him. Our salvation is to bring glory to Him. And everything that He gives us, our home, our cars, our jobs, our food, our money, our time, our energy, our talents, are for Him and His name's sake. And shepherd is leading us into blessings recognize that but turn those blessings back to him and use them for his glory amen all right we're going to make a shift here and we're going to camp out for a minute in this valley of the shadow of death okay hold on so david makes a shift from these green pastures to the valley of the shadow of death now lest you think david this is an easy psalm for you to write you're later in your life you're hanging out in the palace uh, of course you can praise the Lord and, and write this beautiful poem. Let's recount <laughs> some of the valleys of the shadow of death David experienced. Because it's not easy being the king of Israel. First of all, as a child, he faced perilous dangers as a shepherd. He tells the story of killing a bear and having to kill a bear and a lion. How many of you ever done that? That doesn't sound like a green pasture. He was the youngest of his brothers. I'm the youngest of my family, and you know what? It was miserable at times growing up. <laughs> Borderline abuse. I've had people say that to me. It's a wonder you didn't need counseling growing up with your brother, J.B. Selectman. <laughs> Some of y'all know him. You can tell him I said that from the pulpit. He was the youngest of his brothers, um, and he had to deal with public anointed to be king of Israel. He had to wait a long time. Before he even became king, he had to be patient. And then he ended up in Saul's house where Saul hated him and tried to kill him. Even after he became king, uh, he experienced wars. He experienced the, the uh, revolt of his son Absalom. And he continued to have to war against the house of Saul. He had to battle the Philistines. War after war after war, and he anguished in his sin with Bathsheba. And at the end of his days, he spent his time gathering resources for a temple that he would never see built. And most of his house did not serve the Lord. So David knows what it's like to be in the valley of the shadow of death. He recognizes, too, that the shepherd who leads us to green pastures 
is also leading us into the valley of the shadow of death. But he makes a profound statement in one that I think we as Christian Americans need to hear and we need to wrestle with. He says, I will fear no in a society. Listen, I travel the globe. America is consumed with safety. We are consumed with safety and comfort. Now, it's good to wear your seatbelt, wear a hard hat in a factory. I'm not talking about that stuff. I love to run a chainsaw. I wear chaps, okay? That's okay. It's okay to take, you know, protective measures for our life. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about being consumed with the safety and comfort of our Christian circles. We're talking about being safe on this side of the battleground. We're talking about being safe in, uh, uh, you know, back on base rather than out in the trenches. And listen, we need the Christian circles. We need this circle every Sunday morning. We need our small groups. We need our brothers and sisters. We cannot fail to neglect gathering and encouraging and strengthening and admonishing one another and investing the Word of God into each other's lives. But it is for the purpose of the battle. It is for the purpose of advancing the gospel. I got turned around the other day, and I had to turn around in a church, and as I was leaving the parking lot, they had a sign that said, you are now entering the mission field. And I thought, that's great. I need to put one in my driveway. Everything we do here is for, to equip us for the battle. But we're afraid. We are gripped. We are afraid to have gospel conversations at work. We're afraid to engage our neighbors. We're afraid to have a conversation with a a Mormon or someone from to face the enemy because we fear evil. These are why our evangelistic efforts fall short. We're afraid. And look, it's okay to be afraid. But it's when we're afraid and we retreat, We fail to have confidence in our shepherd who's leading us into the valley of the shadow of death. And so we need to equip ourselves for the battle. As Christians, we've got to learn not to fear evil and to fight fire with fire. Let me explain. I want to share with you an illustration. On August 5th, 1949, 16 smoke jumpers responded to a fire 20 miles north of Helena, Montana. Or gal. They jump out of an airplane towards a wildfire into a mountain with a parachute and a bunch of gear to go fight a wildfire. You probably don't, you're probably not a fearful human being. Responded to a small ridge fire. Temperatures in Helena that day were 97 degrees, and it was in the hot August sun. Things were dry. They landed just north of the fire at around 4 p.m., and after about an hour of reconnaissance, they came up with a battle plan to head down the canyon and then approach the fire from the south. They were going to head down towards the Missouri River, come around and approach and fight the battle, or fight the fire from the south. Now, what they didn't know is that in the time that they had landed, 
the winds had shifted from about five to six miles an hour to 20 to 30 miles an hour. And instead of blowing from the north down, they were blowing from the south up, from the bottom of the canyon to the top of the canyon. And the fire had moved from a low ground fire to up into the crowns of the trees. Now, I have a degree in two degrees in forestry. And we've studied fire ecology. When a fire moves into the crowns of the trees, things get tumultuous. And what happens is it throws fire. This is when it gets in the crowns, it can be thrown debris and burning limbs and bushes can be carried over a mile in the winds and start another fire. And this is exactly what happened as they headed down the canyon, the winds increasing and fires were deposited below. This time, they were trapped. They were walled in. They had fire on two sides, and then on the third side was the High Rim Canyon uh, that is common in this part of the world. They were literally walking towards a firestorm. They were in a valley of the shadow of death. And at 545, that's when they confronted this new fire that is moving towards them. Flames 16 to 20 feet high, burning at 3,500 BTUs and moving 250 feet per minute. And at 545, they were 200 yards away from this fire and realized we've got to turn around. Eight minutes later, 553, the fire is at 75 yards. The winds have increased. And, and there's less trees, but there's more grass and bushes. And now they have a grass fire, which moves about four times as fast. The flames have intensified. The wind is picking up. And with 75 yards to go, they drop all of their heavy, heavily, heavy equipment and begin to sprint. But the fire is going faster. And with 50 yards left, the foreman of the fire called his team together and said, come to me. And he did something very curious. He set his own fire. He set his own fire. And as the fire that he set began to spread, instead of advancing in the same direction as the fire, the winds were swirling. It went up the hill and created a huge safety zone where he could now get in the center of this fire. The problem was no one followed his voice. They all ran and as the fire came and engulfed him, he hunkered down in the center of this safe zone that he had lit. And the winds were so strong, he reports that they lifted him off the ground three times. Only three men survived this incident. The foreman and two other men who happened to, at the last minute, instead of going up the canyon, went straight up the hill. And the fire that he set, remember, it went up the hill. Time for them to find a crack in the rock, scramble up the cliff, and they hid out in a rock pile and barely escaped with their lives. The heroics of their foreman by fighting fire with fire saved three men's lives. And fighting fire 
with fire, saved their lives. Now listen, what do I, what's the point of this illustration? In the valley of the shadow of death, we must learn how to fight fire with fire. David did not fear evil because the Lord was with him. And his rod and his staff comforted him. Now, in the new covenant with us today, we have some tools that help us fight fire with fire. I want to give you four of them real quick. There's more. Number one, the Holy Spirit. When he says, the Lord is with me, we are indwelled as believers of Jesus Christ with the living God of the universe through the Holy Spirit. Every believer has a guide and a helper who's leading us into these valleys. The same one who leads us into the green pastures, leading us in this valley. We're not alone. We are not alone. The Holy Spirit lives within us as we face evil. Number two, we have the power of prayer. We can call on the name of the Lord to intercede, to provide boldness, to go before us, to prepare hearts to receive the gospel, to help us with our conversations. For our spiritual enemies to be defeated. We go in Jesus' name. We go in Jesus' name. Name. We come in his name and for his name's sake. This is the same name that is above all names, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. We are in the authority of Jesus Christ as we enter into the battle. His rod and his staff and his name comfort us and he goes before us. Our third tool Our fourth tool, excuse me, is the armor of God. Read about it in Ephesians 6. Let me focus on one piece of that armor, the sword. What's the sword? The word of God. Specifically, his word of truth. We come into the battle with the words of truth to combat heresy, to combat false gospel, to combat the enemy which is deceiving hearts and minds every single day. And it is is a tool that can start a fire. Listen to what Jeremiah 23 says. The context is that there are false prophets, there are false uh, doctrines being preached, and God says, let them declare their dreams and their false prophecies. Am I not the God of heaven? Am I not near? He goes, let them speak. He goes, because you have the words of my word like fire declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. We don't fear evil because we have the Holy Spirit. We have prayer. We go in Jesus' name, and we have the word of truth that can break a heart of stone and set a fire that cannot be stopped. Amen? So why are we so afraid of spiritual warfare? Let's just admit it. We're afraid. And we've got to do a better job of engaging in the battle because I could tell you what, Satan and his enemies are advancing. Read the news. Look at social media. We've got to rise up 
and fear no evil. We can do it. The good shepherd is guiding us there. So do we have confidence, the same confidence David had, that the presence of the Lord can lead us in paths of righteousness, even in the valley of the shadow of death? Do we have confidence? Do we trust him to lead us into the battleground? Now, let's transition to the Lord of hosts. Verse 5 and 6. So perhaps we're not confident in the shepherd's leadership because we are not content with what the Lord of hosts has provided for us. We're not confident because we're not content with his provisions. The term Lord of hosts is used over 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's the first occurrence happens in 1 Samuel when um, Elkanah, I don't know how you pronounce that. I'm from East Tennessee. Elkanah uh, and Hannah go to Shiloh to pray to the Lord of hosts. So these are Samuel's parents. And they go to Shiloh to pray to the Lord of hosts. It's the first time of Jerusalem is where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. And it's where the tent of meeting was erected at this time. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence in the battlefield. It was God's throne on earth. And And it went before Israel. So David, reflecting again on the history of Israel, he recognized that the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord of hosts was present and went before them in the battles as he conquered uh, the, the promised land. Not as David, as the Lord conquered the promised land. And so when they crossed the Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant went first and it stopped the waters and they crossed in calm waters. They were led by, by still waters as the Ark of the Covenant entered. When it went before them in Jericho and marched around the city, it was there. It was God's presence leading and conquering in the battle. And in uh, 1 Samuel 4, when they brought the Ark of the Covenant against the Philistines, the Philistines declared, Woe to us, a God has come into the camp. So at Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was represented and, and housed, and that's where this term Lord of Hosts comes. Host notes that God is our conquering warrior king with his heavenly armies. And so we are not confident sometimes in the Lord because we are not content in what the Lord has conquered for us. And so as David, a conquering king himself, reflects on the history of Israel, he finds contentment in how God defeated their enemies and prepared a table for his people. It's why he can declare in Psalm 2410, the very next psalm, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So I need to confess to you this morning that I struggle with discontentment. I've discovered the last few years of my life that this is, this is a sin I struggle with. 
It wasn't this way when I was, when I was younger. It's kind of shocked me how discontent I can be in life, discontent with where I live, with my house, with various circumstances, with myself, and even times with my family. I can be discontent over something minor or something major, and it can ruin my day, and then I can ruin the day of others in my discontentment. Ultimately, you know what I've discovered? The root of my discontentment stems from not being satisfied with the conquered in the past. I'm not satisfied with what he conquered in the past, and so it's difficult for me to be content in the present. That's the truth. That hurts. I'm a, I get, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to be content with the gospel, but I, what has Jesus conquered for us? Let's review a few things that he's conquered, that as I've reflected on this passage, I'm going, yeah, that adds to my discontentment when I fail to believe and recognize this. Number one, Jesus has conquered perfection. How many of us struggle with trying to be perfect? How many of us feel the pressure to be perfect? How many of us struggle with that? Listen to what Hebrews 5, 9 says. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation. We don't have to try to be perfect because Jesus conquered perfection for us. It's unattainable. And when we strive for perfection, it gets exhausting, and we get discontent, and then we grumble like they did in the wilderness, and we complain, and we are not satisfied with the perfect Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has brought us eternal salvation. I can't be perfect. I never will be perfect, but I can be humble and teachable and become more like Christ. I can try to be perfectible, but only Jesus was perfect. So can we just make a commitment right here and stop trying to be perfect and enjoy the present? That adds to my discontentment. Number two, the second thing Jesus has conquered is our sin. 1 Peter 2.24, which we've already read, said that he bore our sins in his body. Isaiah 53.5 says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He has conquered our sin to where we now do not stand guilty before God the Father. That should be enough. That should be enough. And so I have to remind myself that even when I'm discontent with my own sin, when I struggle uh, in that and I wrestle with my own sin, that God has conquered our sin through Christ. The third thing that Jesus has conquered for us is God's wrath. God's wrath of us all. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. David says, my cup overflows. 
Jesus Christ went to the cross, poured out his blood, and when we, by grace through faith in Christ, come to him, we hand him our cup of sin, and he drinks it. And he also drinks the cup of wrath, God's wrath. And in return, he hands us a cup of his righteousness. Our cup overflows, and he has satisfied the wrath of God. This is the great exchange that Jesus, the good shepherd, becomes the sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter. The conquering Lord of hosts surrenders his life and dies for our sin. And by grace, through faith in Christ, we hand him our sin. He drinks the wrath and hands us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in us of God. Friends, in our discontentment, and let me make it personal, in my discontentment in life, I tell God, this isn't enough. This exchange, the gospel, your perfection, your conquering of my sin, and you're saving me from God's wrath. When I'm discontent, I'm telling him, this isn't enough. I need more, I want more, and I covet Remember what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The law written on the stone tablets. You know what the pinnacle Ten Commandments, the pinnacle of the Ten Commandments are? Thou shalt not covet. You want to know why? Because you can't violate any other commandment without violating that one first. We break any of the commandments, we first covet and break commandment. Number 10, of it more, and we're not satisfied with what the Lord of hosts has conquered for us. So, as a missions pastor, I'm not going to leave you wondering how can we uh, battle discontentment. So, here's a couple of thoughts. Two suggestions for battling discontentment that have helped me in my life. Number one, giving our life away for Christ giving our life away for Christ. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21 describes us as. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. We hand him our sin. He hands us a cup of righteousness. And now we are a vessel for the Lord with a continuous stream of living water flowing into us and overflowing out of us for the benefit of others. He says, cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable and make yourself useful to the master. Be ready for every good work. You are in the house of the Lord. And when I struggle from discontentment, I take as Christ fills my cup with his blessings and with his righteousness, I begin to give it away for Christ's sake, for his name's sake. To live is, we reflect, 
when I begin giving my life away for Christ, it helps me reflect on Ephesians 1.3 that I've already been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. There's no need to covet anything else. So my encouragement to you is if you're struggling with discontentment, if you don't feel like you're satisfied with what the Lord of hosts has conquered, get out there and start giving your life away to Christ and serve the Lord and serve others. Travel to foreign countries and see how others live. Travel to different neighborhoods. Serve your neighbor. Serve others. Begin giving your life away. The more I serve the Lord and others, the more I steward my life for the gospel, the less I struggle with discontentment. Second, we're almost finished. Maintain an eternal perspective. The language in verses 5 and 6, you prepare a table for me, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall follow, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Anointing our head with oil and dwelling in the house of the Lord that's our fate. That's how this ends. Christ is honored to seat us in the heavenly places. He prepares a table in the presence of our enemies, and we will experience the wedding feast of the Lamb where Jesus and his bride, the church, dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. We maintain that eternal perspective, and we know that there's a day coming where we no longer have to live in sin and battle here on earth. We can be content with the journey that the Lord is leading us on. We have to maintain an eternal perspective. Christ is going to anoint our head with oil. In ancient ceremonies, if you came to a, a fancy dinner with the king, and he invited people all across the land, your enemies might be there. And in great honor, he would anoint your head with oil, which would make your head and hair and your face shine in the presence of your enemies. And it was a great honor. Friends, let me tell you, when we get to heaven, he is going to anoint us with a white robe, a new body, and a new name. And we are going to dwell in the presence of our enemies before they are cast away. We don't have to fear evil, and we can be content with the journey we're on because the journey ends being completely in the present and ever. And it says the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Contentment in the gospel says this is enough. This is enough for me. I don't need any more. No matter what happens in this life, I can safely say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our salvation is secure. I don't have to be afraid of evil, and I can be satisfied in Christ. So finally, just the question again is, do we have confidence in the presence of Christ to lead us into the battle. As much as we have confidence for him to lead us into the green pastures, 
And are we satisfied in what the Lord of hosts has conquered for us so that we can journey in this life with contentment in the gospel? Let's pray.